Introducing the new Starbucks Pistachio Cream Cold Brew. Silky Pistachio Cream Cold Foam tops our bold, smooth cold brew for a delicious twist on a favorite winter flavor. Make today a good day. Order ahead on the Starbucks app. Does picking an outfit have you running a little too fashionably late? We get it. Great taste takes time. That's why Drizzly, the number one app for alcohol delivery, has your back with the largest selection of beer, wine, and spirits, delivered in under 60 minutes. Convenience never goes out of style. So if you need to spend some extra time in the mirror instead of at the store, download the Drizzly app or go to drizzly.com. That's D-R-I-Z-L-Y.com today. Hey, Ollie. Hey, Dave. Welcome to the What Difference Does It Make podcast. And this week, we've got Bob Gruen, the photographer, now author. He has written a new book called Right Place, Right Time, The Life of a Rock and Roll Photographer. And we're going to get right into it. So let's get started. When did it start? When did you actually Uh, start writing it? Well, I've been wanting to write a book probably 30 years. Um, Actually, as I say at the beginning of my book, I was telling stories to a band in 1979 and uh, they missed a turn and didn't mind because uh, they just enjoyed my stories. The so, extra 90 minutes. Yeah. <laughs> um, so it's been like, you know, year, for years I've been telling stories to people in bars and cars and wherever I am. And they always say, you should write a book. Uh, it's not that easy to write a book. Uh, so I worked with a number of different writers over the year. and It was never really coming out right uh, in, in my kind of words. And so finally this last year, I worked with a good writer, Dave Thompson. Uh, he wrote a book for Sylvain Sylvain. He's also written Walter Lohr's book. Uh, he's actually written quite a few books. Um, and he and I did some interviews. I did interviews with other friends of mine, and we collected all of them. And Dave basically put it together into a flow, into a story. And uh, and that's what made it happen. Uh, and then my wife and I revised it all uh, during the last holiday, uh, uh, about a year ago during Christmas holiday. Uh, put everything back into my words. And then um, uh, we had some copy editors and proofreading over the winter. It was basically finished in March. It went to the printers. And now it's finally done. And and, uh, and, and I like it. it. It feels heavy. It's, it's actually got over 100,000 words, but this, and there are over 250 pictures, but it's not a picture book. Uh, I've done almost 15, I think, picture books. Uh, but this is a book of words that you're meant to read. A uh, story of my life. Uh, a lot of good stories. But I, I, I was glad that it was that this one, because obviously we've all seen your pictures and, you know, we've seen the books, but I was happy to be able to read more than see the pictures in this one, honestly. And right. I, I, yeah, it was uh, very enjoyable. And that was the first thing I wondered was why it had taken you this long to write, to write your memoirs. Cause obviously there's a lot. Well, there's a big difference between talking and writing. You know, I've been talking and telling stories for years. And when you talk, you use words like um and er and 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 you pause. And I call that verbal punctuation. But when you write, you have to use actual punctuation. And it's a different process. Uh, And words take on a, a real more powerful meaning when... They're on the page. And so there's over 100,000 words, and we have to think about each one and what they mean and whether they mean, you know, fit in the story and so on. Uh, so it took a while. 
But anyway, I'm really glad it's finally done. It's very real. It feels good. It's 400 pages. It feels like a real book. <laughs> it is a real book. And it even... It um, is a real book. <laughs> And actually, I want to go to the the very beginning because I always love the dedication. Um, it goes mm -hmm. for my grandchildren in the hope that they enjoy the freedom of rock and roll. And you kind of touch on that in your introduction. But uh, what do you imagine that the the freedom of rock and roll means to future generations? Well, I'm glad you brought that up because to me, rock and roll is the um, rock and roll is a freedom to express your feelings very loudly in public. Uh, it's about that moment when the entire audience is screaming, "Yay!" And nobody's thinking about paying the rent. And it's that kind of freedom, the freedom to just be and to be alive and to be open and to just let your emotions out. And I think going forward, that's going to be even more important. It's always important to, uh, to be free, to be yourself. And that's been the theme of my whole life. It's about freedom. I hope that people can read my book and, and kind of pick up on that and you know, have a little freedom in their life. You're always searching your freedom. Your your parents, you know, you read the beginning and your parents are like, well, you need a job and you got a job, I guess, with Nabisco, taking pictures, you know, snapping photos. But then you escape to Greenwich Village. What's going through your mind in those early days and how did it feel to have that freedom? Well, when I got out of high school, my parents wanted me to go to colleges, um, but that really wasn't working for me. I, I tried a few and um, I was more interested in the idea of turning on, tuning in and dropping out. Uh, and my idea of dropping out was to live with a rock and roll band in Greenwich Village. Uh, mm -hmm. Little did I know that I was actually falling in. And that when that band, the Glitter House, got a deal with Bob Crew, and they actually, their niche in the internet is that they sang the vocals for Barbarella. <laughs> uh, but uh, I lived with them for a couple of years, and it was around when they did the vocals, uh, Bob Crew made an album for them, and they introduced me to the publicist at Atlantic Records. And that basically started my career, which I didn't know I had. I mean, I wasn't really <laughs> looking for a job. I was looking to drop out. But I had pictures of my friends, and they used them. And then Bob Rowlands at Atlantic Records hired me to do the Bee Gees and to do uh, some other bands. <laughs> and uh, so anyway, when uh, Atlantic Records hired me, and one thing led to another, and every job I went to after that, um, I kept meeting more people, and people were paying me to take pictures. Uh, so before I knew it, I was actually falling in and having a job. And then... Uh, I took some pictures of Tina Turner at a concert one night, and uh, we went to see her a couple of days later, and I brought the pictures basically to show my friends. But one of my friends saw Ike Turner and literally pushed me in front of Ike and said, show Ike the pictures. And he liked the pictures that I took, and uh, before I knew it, I was traveling with Ike and Tina Turner and uh, making videotapes for them. And that introduced me to a lot more people in the, in the music business. That's kind of just, uh, like I say in the book, you have to be in the right place at the right time, but then you have to do the right thing. It's not just being right. there. You have to do the right thing. And uh, consistently, I came up with good pictures for good people. I mean, it was right place, right time, but you obviously had some talent. You've been honing your talent for many years. Yeah. This wasn't just, you know, you, you took a lucky picture. You, you had some knowledge of photography. And uh, talk about this iconic uh, photo of Tina Turner that you took and, and how... Mm -hmm you because of you were running out of film or, or please tell the story of how this well, uh, was captured we went to see a, a friend of mine said we had to see tina turner that she was amazing so we went and saw him open for sam and david the fellow for him and she was just amazing like i'd never seen anybody so dynamic and exciting and so they played another show a couple of days later at a place called the honka monka room in queens and we went to see him there and i brought my camera for the first time and uh, sitting on the floor in front of the stage, I took a whole series of pictures. And I was at the end of the roll. I had four or five shots left. And Tina, at the end of her set, she would dance off stage as a strobe light was flashing. So I thought maybe if I opened the camera for one second, 
uh, he'd catch several of the strobe flashes and just see what would happen. So I took the last four or five frames like that. Four of them are useless, but one of them is one of my most perfect pictures uh, that just captures Tina in five different images in the one frame that really captures the excitement of Tina Turner. And I brought the pictures with me a couple of days later, and then Ike saw that, and that just really started the career. It, it was just a, a, a lucky moment, but you have to try to get those lucky moments. It was a lucky moment, but it, but it was... It was lucky because I tried something. You know, you, you have to take a chance, and um, and I did. I, and it, it worked out. I know we're talking about the pictures, the photos, obviously, but also in the book, the way you portray these artists for you with words, like in Tina and John and Yoko, it's very. Um, it's eye-opening for an audience. It's not a way that we really get to read about them a lot, which I thought was really interesting, in addition to how the photos come together. I mean, the relationships that you had with them. Well, you know, in high school, growing up, I was always friends with creative people, with the artists, with the musicians. Uh, it's just more of my lifestyle, and I'm much more comfortable staying up at night than getting up in the morning. <laughs> and uh, I can't tell people how to become friends with creative people. It's just that's what I did in my life. Not all the people I worked with, I don't automatically become friends with people. There are a lot of jobs. I just took my camera, show up, take pictures for 10 minutes and leave. Uh, some of the people I worked with, uh, I got to be friends with. I'm very lucky. I got to be friends with some pretty cool people. And I can't explain how to become friends with somebody. It's just either they like you or, and you like them or, or it doesn't. You know, uh, you can't really explain something like that. You know? And was that like when you knew when to bring out the camera and when not to, when you were in. Well, that's part of it too. You have to have discretion and, uh, and build up a trust. I mean, you know, taking pictures of somebody can be very exposing, you know, of their personality. People are sometimes very nervous. Uh, some people would rather go to a dentist than have their picture taken. You know, <laughs> um, you know if you do it and, and you show them the pictures, I mean, I always make a point of showing the people uh, the pictures I take and hoping that they like them. And then only using the ones they like. I don't like to embarrass people. It's not a, I don't see that as a form of censorship. I see that as a form of working with somebody and trying to help somebody. So I think that after you do that for a while, you tend to build up a, a certain amount of trust and then people um, are more open to you. Yeah, I guess you kind of learned that from, uh, you are talking about the um, your first album cover that uh, where you, you you submitted a photo that you that you didn't like. For, what was it? Uh, the band, right, the Shirelles. Well, it what? wasn't a photo I didn't like. I just gave them all the pictures. Yeah. And then they picked a picture that we didn't like. And uh, I learned a lesson from that. I took some pictures of the Shirelles. We did a, a whole photo session, like probably eight or ten rolls of film. And uh, the uh, art director picked one picture that was, uh, where they were very, very small, and he printed it very small on the cover, and it just didn't make any sense. And, and the band got into such an argument with the uh, the record label that the record never even came out. Mm -hmm. So I learned from then on uh, only to send pictures that you want somebody to use and, and not give them the choice because they usually make the wrong choice. Okay, we're going to take a break right now. We're talking with Bob Gruen, the author of Right Place, Right Time, The Life of a Rock and Roll Photographer. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the What Difference Does It Make podcast. So I, I'm sure you're asked this a lot, but do you have a preference when you're shooting photos of concert or candid, you know, a photo, like a photo I, I, shoot? No, I, don't, I, I don't have a preference. Uh, I just like to satisfy the customer. 
Uh, my <laughs> preference is to give the you know give the customer what they want, and and try to do it as as well as you can. Uh, but for me, I, I'm very spontaneous. I can shoot pictures in the dressing room, uh, live pictures on a stage, pictures in the studio. Uh, to me, it's just about capturing the feelings and the uh, emotions of what's going on in front of me, uh, of what I see, uh, and I can do that anywhere. But it's more important for me to capture the feelings than just the facts. You know, sometimes in my pictures, the subject's not exactly sharp, but the feelings are always clear because mm -hmm. that's, that's what I focus on. Yeah, I think one of my favorite photos of yours is the Sex Pistols with the straws, and it just uh, oh, the most spontaneous moment. Right, that's what it felt like, uh, but it kind of captured the the spirit of of the Pistols. A lot of bands like that I work with, like that, like the uh, the Sex Pistols, the Clash, and a lot of the punks didn't want to pose. Uh, the Allman Brothers, you know, were notorious for not wanting to pose for a picture. Um, and so you just have to kind of catch a moment where they're all kind of standing together and say, hey, guys, look at me. <laughs> you know? And then you get a group shot uh, with the sex business. They all happen to be sitting on the same side of the table. And uh, so I jumped up and said, you know, let me get a picture. And now the, some bands like the Sex Pistols uh, were great. Um, Green Day's like that, that they just know how to work together as comedians. That if one guy gets an idea, the others just immediately see the idea and fall in with their own version of it. Mm. So, for instance, it was Johnny Rotten picked up a straw and put it to Sid's head, and then the other guys just came in with their version of, you know, what to do with a straw and just making a very funny picture. Uh, who was it who said that the Sex Pistols are either anarchists or the Marx Brothers, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Because no, uh, they that. were very funny. Yep. And were you, you were on the bus with it? You were on this U.S. tour, this notorious U.S. Yes, tour. Yes, I was. That was also quite a... My life was, you know, right place, uh, right time, uh, <laughs> I, I thought I was just going to see this. I, I, I knew Malcolm from the New York Dolls. So the first time I went to England, Malcolm had helped me out. I didn't know anybody except Malcolm, and he got me a place to stay, and he introduced me to the Sex Pistols, and I met the Clash and a bunch of people. And then when the Sex Pistols were coming to America a year and a half later, um, I thought I would just see them in New York, get some pictures of them, and, uh, and they would go off on America and have a good time. <laughs> um, but then Sid seemed to have some kind of visa problem, and... Uh, they got delayed. They didn't come to New York. They just went straight to Atlanta. So I figured I would go to Atlanta just to have some pictures of the Sex Pistols in America. You know, I worked with the Rock Scene magazine, and we covered the whole scene, and I felt I needed to get some pictures of the Sex Pistols in America. But I was just going for that night. I went with my camera bag. I was coming home in the morning, and I was saying goodbye to them in the parking lot when Malcolm said, uh, too bad you can't come with us, you know, but we're only allowed 12 people on the bus. I know I said to Malcolm, I said, well, too bad I can't come with you, but I'm sure you're going to have a good time. And he said, yeah, we're only allowed 12 on the bus, and there's Sophie and the band and the guards. And said, well, that's only 11, Bob. Why don't you get on the bus? <laughs> and I was like, what? And I remember there was a guy next to me who said, I'll come, Malcolm. And Malcolm said, no, sorry, Bob asked first. And I don't remember actually asking. <laughs> right. Uh, but I got on the bus and I uh, woke up, you know, 10, 12 days later in San Francisco. Uh, made one of my favorite phone calls. I picked up the phone and called the concierge. I said, what time is the next plane back to New York City? <laughs> um, but I, I must say, you know, everybody talks about the notorious, chaotic Sex Pistols tour across America, which in the clubs it was. People were throwing things and yelling and everybody was drunk. But on the bus, it was actually really mellow. Uh, we had the tapes from Don Letts, the reggae DJ, and uh, he had a lot of dub tapes, and they were just, you know, listening to the reggae music, smoking a little bit, drinking some uh, mostly beer. I think Sid was drinking peppermint schnapps. 
Uh, and then the door would open and the world would be out there and chaos would ensue. Uh, I remember one time when we pulled up to, to whatever city we were getting into and then opened the door, Steve Jones kind of cleared his throat and spit on the ground. And there were three or four press people outside says, look out, look out, he's spitting at us. <laughs> and that was like a news story. And, and Steve didn't even get to talk to him. <laughs> he, he was getting ready to talk to him. So um, it was kind of funny uh, how people reacted to the Sex Pistols. Uh, well, well, how, I, I wasn't expecting a reaction like that at all. Well, how were the Pistols reacting to southern the southern part of the United States? Because that's where the tour was. and that's Well, uh, they were kind of surprised, you know, with America, especially with our, the gun-loving America. I remember in Texas... Uh, some guy came in the dressing room and he pulled up his shirt and he had a giant revolver, you know, some forty-five caliber monster gun in his belt. And these were English boys who had never seen a gun. Mm. And the guy was basically showing him, saying, don't worry, guys, I've got you covered. I'm on your side and I'll protect you. You don't have any problems. And we're all looking at him, protect from what? You know? yeah. We didn't know we needed protection, you know. But they were fascinated with America, as most, you know, tourists or especially English, you know, bands are. They bought cowboy hats. They bought leather jackets. You know, they had hamburgs. <laughs> they just, you know, they love being in America like everybody else does. Sid reading Mad Magazine. That's a great photo as well. Mad Magazine. There you go. <laughs> uh, they got into the culture of America, yes. We know people are obsessed with America, but you talk a lot about Japan and how much you love uh, mm. the the. the yeah, I just seem to have an affinity for Japan. I went there in 1974 with Yoko on a tour, and I just met a lot of good people. You know, being with Yoko, I met some of the top people in the record company and the media business. And actually, I was one of the promoters from that tour. Uh, because I met him, I introduced him to New York Dolls when he came to America. And then I went back to Japan with the Dolls. And then because I'd been there twice, I, I got to go back with the Bay City Rollers. And uh, like I say, in my life, one thing just leads to another, right mm-hmm. place, right time. And I ended up, I made almost 15 or 16 trips to Japan, more than uh, most people ever get to. And I ended up with a lot of friends in Japan. So in 1979, after the 70s, I needed a place to kind of dry out and and get my health back. Uh, I went and got an apartment in Tokyo. And I really like it there. It's, It's fascinating. But, you know, you have to be open to different cultures. I love Japanese food. I don't mind when people around me are talking and I don't understand a word because uh, I generally pick up on the feelings of what's going on. I'm comfortable with that. And at the time, New York in the 70s was very dangerous. And Japan is a very safe place where uh, there's not a lot of street crime, uh, not a lot of crime at all, actually. And the food is great and the people are great and they, they respect artists as opposed to America, where they, they think the artists are just lazy people who don't want to work. <laughs> but I found yeah, a lot of respect in Japan. And so I, I've been there many times. I, I like Japan a lot. Japanese fans seem a lot different than, than U.S. audiences. Or they're, they're well, very passionate. passionate. Yeah, passionate um, is the word. Since they really get into it. And, uh, you know, in the Bay City Roller days, it was before they really had a lot of merchandising. But the Bay City Rollers had their own... Costume ideas, you know, the, the whole idea of wearing plaid and wearing stripes. But you couldn't buy a Bay City Ruler outfit, so all the kids made their own outfits. And I in Japan, mine. they're just so creative and so colorful. Uh, the Kiss fans, too, came up mm-hmm. with makeup, but not Kiss makeup. They came up with their own makeup, purples and yellows and all kinds of paint they put on their face. It, it, it's fascinating to see people take an idea and then advance on it and take it to another level. And in Japan, they're really creative and taking things to all kinds of levels. 
Would you say, sorry, I'm going back nope. to the basic Yeah, English, of course, please do. <laughs> <laughs> because you were, you said you were with them in Japan, but you were also uh, with them on their first trip to the U.S.? Uh, yes, I was very lucky. The publicist, Carol Kleffner, who's my publicist now, actually, uh, she worked the Rolling Stones and the Who, and uh, I did a lot of work with Carol back then. And uh, when the Bay City Rollers came to town, she hired me, and the Bay City Rollers liked me, and I ended up getting along with them. So whenever they came to America, I went to California, Atlanta, Chicago. I was all over the country with the, the Rollers, and then in Japan. They were a fun group to photograph. Uh, their music is very rock and roll. Uh, they had some serious hit singles, Saturday Night, and uh, uh, you know a number of hit singles. But it was different from trying to photograph a band like The Who or The Allman Brothers, where the fans were like 22-year-old big you know, guys who were drunk on beer. At the Bay City Rollers, it was all these cute little 12-year-olds who were just as insanely crazy, but they didn't bang into you with the force of a 250-pound guy. You know? So it was much more fun for me to be uh, photographing them, much less dangerous for me to be photographing the Bay City Rollers. It's great. And also they made whole magazines about the Rollers. Like I would go to a magazine and sell them two pictures of the Rolling Stones and one picture of Blondie and 45 pictures of the Bay City Rollers because they make a whole special issue. So uh, the I Rollers were one of my best bands. <laughs> That's good to hear. I was one of their best, the best consumers. <laughs> <laughs> and probably I let you, I, I might have even been in one of you. Did you happen to shoot the show at the Santa Monica Civic Auditorium in yes. 1970? Yes, I did. I was out there in California. That was my first concert. Oh, really? Oh, wow. It's a good one. It's a good one. They were, they were so much fun. Your description about it in the book was very accurate about ever, just pushing. I remember being so shocked because I was towards the front being pushed up against the stage. So, mm-hmm. an accurate well, the, the girls would scream so much yes. that you kind of hyperventilate. You breathe too much and your body becomes oversaturated with oxygen. And you and the kids would pass out, yeah. <laughs> and they carry these girls out there. I have a picture. I think it was in Philadelphia. There must have been twenty-five girls laid out on the floor, and what they do is they make them breathe into a bag. <laughs> so you're breathing your carbon dioxide back, and, and you bring down the level of oxygen, so you calm the body down. And I have a picture of like twenty-five of these girls laying on the floor, breathing from bags, trying to calm down. That's crazy. Uh, they would get very excited for the Bay City Rollers. Yeah. In fact, when we were in Japan, talk about the Japanese audience. Uh, we were at the, the Hilton Hotel. It was a popular hotel for rock and roll bands back then, a great hotel, the Tokyo Hilton. Uh, but when the rollers were there, there was 3,000 kids out there all night and more thousands during the day um, singing roller songs and chanting and <laughs> carrying on. And the hotel was so upset about it. It was the last time they let a rock and roll band stay there. Uh, they banned rock and roll after that. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> and you think it would be like the Allman Brothers at a Led Zeppelin, but no, it's the Bay City Rollers that caused the chaos. <laughs> We were very passionate, <laughs> but but yes. so you, but you did experience this on your own on your your first experience seeing going to a Rolling Stone show. You kind of uh, you weren't you almost you had no idea who this band was when you went to. I the had fr- never heard of the Rolling Stones. I was going to buy a pair of Beetle boots on Fourteenth Street from the Flag Brothers store for ten dollars, and I ran into a high school friend, and she said, "I'm selling tickets for the Rolling Stones," huh. and I said, "What's the Rolling Stones?" And she's a band. They're going to play in the theater. And I thought, in a theater? I thought bands played in bars. I didn't know they played in a theater. Um, and I said, well, how much are the tickets? She said, $10. And so instead of getting the boots, I got, I got the, the Rolling Stone tickets. And I remember going in, and it was just people screaming, people yelling, people throwing paper plates. I'd never seen anything that was so chaotic 
and out of control and loud. And uh, there was an opening band that came and went. Uh, I looked actually on the internet, and it seems that Patti LaBelle was one of the opening acts, but I don't remember seeing her, but I got my ticket late, so maybe I missed them. Uh, (laughs) But uh, when the Rolling Stones came out, it was just so much noise and screaming. I didn't hear any music until the very end. I could hear the kind of the bass line of satisfaction. And I heard that line for the next three weeks pounding through my head. It was an amazing you know, uh, that was my first concert. <laughs> it was the Rolling Stones. Right. That was your Bay City <laughs> Rollers <laughs> moment. Start, you know? <laughs> but you were, so you were a folkie and you're, you also, you were right place, right time. You went to the Newport Folk Festival and uh, you saw Dylan and you yes, saw him. So I actually went in seven, I, I went in 64, but I didn't have money for tickets or anything. So the next year when I came back in 65, Clip. a friend of my mother's had written a letter for me uh, from his public relations agency saying that I, rec- I, I, re- I represented them as a photographer. And I took that to the box office and they told me to get lost. And I said, no, I'm here. I got to get a photo pass. And they told me to get lost. And it, it went on for a little while. And then finally, they, I wouldn't give up. Yeah. So they gave me a photo pass. And I got in in 65. And that was the year that Bob Dylan famously played with an electric uh, guitar. Now, other people played with electric guitars. It wasn't the guitar. It was that he was playing with a, a rock and roll band as opposed to a folk band. It didn't sound like folk music. It sounded like rock and roll music. And actually, you know, writing the book and thinking about it and looking at it uh, and looking at the way he looked, he doesn't look like a folk singer. Mm -hmm. In the earlier Bob Dylan days, he's wearing a work shirt or a denim jacket. Uh, When he came on stage in Newport, he had a bright orange shirt, which was very unusual with a tab collar that was buttoned, which just, I I can't explain how that mattered, but it just was wrong to have a tab collar buttoned without a tie and, uh, and a leather jacket and Spanish boots with, you know, Cuban heels. And he looked like a rock star. He didn't look like a folk singer. And I think just that when he appeared on stage, the audience was kind of put off to begin with. And then when he started up with a a really rocking beat, they were like, what is this? This isn't quiet folk music. This isn't, you know, blowing in the wind. What happened to our hero of the movement, of the protest movement? But Dylan had moved on. And I think for me, and like I say in the book, that it was a very important night because what Dylan was making a statement, he was basically saying that rock and roll is the folk music of America now. That, you know, you don't have to sound like uh, Woody Guthrie. You can sing folk music, but folk music is rock and roll. And you, But you were a folky, though. So what side were you? Were you surprised by his appearance and what he was presenting I'm, at the I'm, stage? I'm not, I'm not judgmental. You know, I, I didn't expect anything. I, I, I take it as it comes. So uh, I actually liked it a lot. I had heard the song Subterranean Homesick Blues on, the, on, on my car radio, mm-hmm. uh, which was, again, you know, you look back at the times, it was so much simpler that something like that song came out on the radio. Dylan was saying so many powerful words so fast that I literally pulled off the road and parked the car and stared at my radio trying to hear what he was saying. Mm-hmm. And the only thing I could remember at the end was the pump don't work because the man who took the handle. What does that mean? You know, uh, and it took a while, but I was very open to it. And the song Like a Rolling Stone was something that had great meaning for me because at the time I was on my own and I was, I had no place to go home, you know, and, and I really felt that. 
that kind of, you know, Dylan, uh, his lyrics have always meant quite a bit to me. I have some funny stories in the in the book and how I, I, you know, people say, oh, you meet all these people, you become friends with everybody. Well, I actually did meet Dylan a couple of times and he either told me to fuck off or wanted to beat me up. You know, I was the, the one guy that I really admired the most and, and I had no friendship contact whatsoever. Well, why uh, why was that? You'll why? see in the book, there's some very funny encounters. <laughs> <laughs> the first one I remember the first one where you were in his face and you said you sounded like you had second thoughts about actually because you know no one wants to be shot that way right yeah you don't want to just put the camera right in somebody's face uh, yeah because uh, he was at a club at the bottom line and I saw him coming towards the door and I had my camera and I just knew he was going to come right up in front of me and I could just take a picture so um, but yeah I was a little hesitant because I don't like to just catch somebody off guard but I was just so excited to see Bob Dylan. And so as he came towards me, I just lifted the camera up and just <laughs> shot a flash right in his face. And uh, he just kind of came further towards me and put his <laughs> finger up like, fuck you. And he literally touched my cheek. And I was stunned. It was like, oh my God, he touched me. And he told me to fuck off. <laughs> <laughs> right? It's like, it's uh, yeah, it was kind of, you know, I, I don't mean, to, I really felt bad because I don't mean to intrude on people like that, but it is a good picture. You know? yes. <laughs> and he did remember you, <laughs> right? Uh, well, I don't know if he remembers me, but oh. um, I took a bunch of pictures during the Rolling Thunder tour when he had very, very strict restrictions. And I took that as a challenge and I felt that it was a newsworthy event and, and I needed to take pictures of it because it was newsworthy and, and, I thought it was wrong uh, for him to restrict it like that. Now, later, thinking about it later, I realized that on a personal level, I was wrong to, you know, disobey to that, you know, he, he's allowed to feel that he can, con you know, have control over his image. And, um, and maybe I was wrong to intrude on that, but I did go to seven of the shows that you weren't allowed to photograph. And then I happened to see him on a street in Berlin, a year and a half later, and that's when he told me he wanted to beat me up. Uh, <laughs> the whole story's in the book. I hope people like my book. <laughs> yes, they will. Uh, I've enjoyed my life, and I've tried to share it in the book. So um, I think it's a lot of fun, and, and I hope that people get inspiration from it. And, um, you know, uh, like I said, my uh, rock and roll to me is about freedom. It's about the freedom to express your feelings very loudly in public. That's the feeling I try to get across in the book, and I hope that people can pick up on that. That's great. Um, before I do want to touch on someone who did invite you into his life to share. It's you know the the John and Yoko. Uh, they trusted you, and, yes. and you've you moved it. You know you took first photos of Sean. You know it back nineteen. Uh, that was forty five years ago. This well, this you month, build up a trust. You know um, the first time I took pictures with them, they asked to see them. Uh, and they kind of said, like, we'll give you access if you'll show us the pictures and then only use the pictures that we want. And some people would consider that censoring, but I consider that working with an artist uh, because I'd like to use the pictures that they like and I'd like to help them make, you know, look uh, like what they want to look like. Uh, and so uh, the more you do that, the more you build up a trust with somebody and the more you get to work with them more often. This is also the month of your birthday. Usually you have like big birthday celebrations. Well, for 26 years, we had a big party and it just got so big that I kind of had to call a hold for a while. And the whole time, I, we stopped on a 71. Uh, next Friday, I'm going to be 75 years old. 
And I was looking forward to having a big birthday party and a big book release party. Mm -hmm. And uh, instead, we're going to have a virtual party on Tuesday. I think it's going to be on my YouTube channel for a while. Uh, it's actually very exciting. My friend Jesse Mallon has helped me put it together. And we've got tribute videos from all kinds of people saying happy birthday and congratulations uh, from Debbie Harry and Iggy Pop and Alice Cooper and all kinds of people that came in to support me, uh, which is really wonderful. Uh, since I can't exactly go out on a book tour this year, but uh, I'm gonna have more birthdays and yeah. hopefully some more yeah. birthday parties. You're looking great. Well, happy birthday! <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying. <laughs> All right. So the book is called Right Place, Right Time. Oh, by the way, right. was there ever a wrong place, wrong time? Was there? What was the shot that got away? Tell me about that. Oh, um, uh, when you looked down at your camera. Oh was, yeah, my wife was reminding me there was a time <laughs> actually during that Rolling Thunder tour of Bob Dylan uh, when I had actually gone all the way down to Atlanta and uh, snuck my cameras in and ended up during the encore, jumped up on a seat and I'm taking some pictures and it was actually Jimmy Carter was the governor and I was a few rows behind him. So Dylan was looking in that direction and I was getting uh, like head to waist pictures. It was just like poster cover kind of pictures, just beautiful pictures. One after another, click, 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 click. He was looking right at me. And I, I took so many pictures. I realized like this is this roll of film seems awfully long. And then I went and checked, and the thing was that when I had run out of film and to change the camera, I changed one camera. I hadn't changed the film in the other camera, and I've been shooting 40 or 50 pictures with no film in the camera. So, yeah, that does happen. Oh. It happened with Dylan. Of, of course, with Dylan. Yeah. Well, I'm sure Dylan would have been thrilled to hear that story. Yeah, <laughs> like, <laughs> Well, this is great. This is really wonderful. The book is out now. Right. Yeah. The right place. Right. Local booksellers, wherever they sell books online or in an actual store, perhaps. Go to an actual store and buy it. The life of a, of a rock and roll photographer. Yes. Thank <laughs> you. Yeah. Buy it from an independent bookstore. Yeah. Keep right? the bookstores in business. Right. Yes. Go to Greenwich Village and get a book there. Get your book. Yes. There. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, actually, great. the Mark Jacobs store, the Bookmark store, is right here in Greenwich Village. They're a great store. They have. Um, uh, Jennifer, the d director of Mark Jacobs stores, gets very eclectic, interesting books. Uh, and the thing is, if you go online, they're going to recommend what you think, what they think, what the algorithm thinks you like. But mm -hmm. you go check out Bookmark and see what Jennifer thinks you'll like. Yeah, my daughter shops there. <laughs> oh, yeah, it's a great yes, story. She's told me about it. Oh, geez. I can't. La last thing, because it's, it's in my this, this photo of Led Zeppelin is in my daughter. She's a college age kid, and she's got the, the Led Zeppelin plane photo in her bedroom. What is it about that photo that you think just transcends? Well, you, got the, you got these carefree guys that don't even have to button their own shirt, and they got their own airplanes. <laughs> Who doesn't want that? <laughs> Dave Bryan from the Bon Jovi band told me that he grew up looking at that picture. He's one of the few people who actually achieved the goal. <laughs> <laughs> wow. But most people just see that picture and think, that's the life. I want that life. <laughs> And what? it was just a spur of the moment. I think there's like eight frames. Like we were getting on the plane. I just, I think Lisa Robinson said, hey, let's get a picture by the plane. And we walked over to the wing. And what I like about the picture is the plane is so big, it doesn't fit in the picture. <laughs> you just see part of the engine and part of the plane. It's like this monstrous giant plane behind them. It was actually a very nice plane. It had two bedrooms, a bar, um, fireplace in one of the bedrooms. It was quite an interesting plane. I'm sure they, <laughs> they had the Coke room. I'm sure there was, there was a lot of things, little secret areas in there. <laughs> <laughs> I was on a plane with Elton John and Stevie Wonder too. There's a picture of that and the, the, that whole story is yeah. in the book as well. 
I mean, yeah, I mean, we could talk forever on this because you, again, we, we need to turn, we need to take a wrong turn so we could talk some more with you. Okay. <laughs> and just go on and on and on. But, but it's all in there. Well, that's why I put it all in, in the book. So I don't have to actually be. In right. the <laughs> I know, but uh, thank you so much for your time. This has just been uh, oh, really wonderful. This is great. Yes. Thank you. Happy birthday, by the way. Happy birthday. Yes. Take right, care. Peace. Peace and love. <laughs> take care. Okay. <laughs> thanks, Bob. Bye. All right. Thank you. So that was great. A lot of fun. Our, our talk with Bob Gruen. He has a fascinating book filled with so many stories. It's amazing. It's called Right Place, Right Time, The Life of a Rock and Roll Photographer. We'd like to give a big thank you to Carol Kleffner, who helped facilitate this interview. And also a special shout out to Elizabeth, Bob's lovely wife, who helped him set up his Zoom interview. Thank you again for tuning in. This is the What Difference Does It Make podcast. You want any information on us, please check us out on Facebook on the What Difference Does It Make podcast page. You can also follow us through our monthly newsletter, wddimpodcast.com. Please sign up. The What Difference Does It Make podcast is a proud member of the Pantheon podcast family. And until next week, this is Dave. This is Holly. Check you later. Over and out. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.